Hi folk, and welcome to the JD's Journal podcast, where every couple of weeks, my guests and I share some of our life's journey, our successes, our failures, the valuable lessons that we've learned on the way, and the resources that we've gathered that have allowed us to survive, prosper, and thrive. The opinions and perspectives shared on JD's Journal should be taken and applied with your own good judgment. Episodes of the podcast are largely unscripted and unedited. I'll do my best to keep things on topic, but you can expect some occasional glitches and a little meandering along the way. I hope, if nothing else, you find that entertaining. Now, let's get this episode started. Hi, folk, and welcome to the very first episode of JD's Journal, my new podcast. All the planning, the preparation, the palpitations, and okay, quite a bit of procrastination are over, and I'm so excited to be here and to have you listening in. Given this is the first episode of the podcast and being very aware that for many of you I'm a perfect stranger, I'm going to dedicate this episode to sharing a little bit of my own story. If you're like most people, including me, you just hate talking about yourself. Most of us would rather have a root canal than introduce ourselves. So although this is the polite and proper thing to do, I'm looking forward to getting this episode in the can and out of the way so we can focus on far more important topics. You can feel free to skip this episode if that's your preference. I promise I won't be offended in any way whatsoever. I do want to warn you up front, I'm going to be talking about some potentially triggering topics, including death. So if if this isn't a good topic for you or if exposed to those sorts of stories can trigger you, you may want to skip this episode. Okay, for those who are curious enough to stay on, here we go. So I was born in 1962 in a relatively small New South Wales uh, country town, Tari, named by the local Indigenous people for the great uh, fig trees that grow along the Manning River. Tari is about 300 kilometres or 200 miles north of Sydney, and while it's not on the coast, it's close enough to the coast to be considered a coastal town. And most of the families there spend considerable time on the beautiful beaches of Saltwater and Old Bar and Diamond Head and so forth. Um, when I lived there, the town had a population of about 11,000 people. And given there's now a bypass that goes around the town, the, the highway between Sydney and Brisbane, the town hasn't grown much beyond 20,000 today. Sadly, this was my first exposure to how we failed to harmonise with our First Nations people who've owned and cared for this amazing land of ours for the last 50 or 60,000 years. During my early years in Tari, I observed that the original owners of the land have been largely relegated to living in a settlement outside of Tari called Perfleet. When it was first established as a mission called Sunrise Station back in 1903 and right up until 1952, the Indigenous residents there weren't permitted to go to town without prior approval. As children, we engage with our Indigenous brothers and sisters at school and sports, but for the adults, the divide seems significant between our cultures. It is worth mentioning that Patricia David Hurst, or Aunty Pat as she was known, uh, went from being an Indigenous health worker at the Perfleet Baby Clinic to being globally renowned for her work in promoting the awareness of reconciliation, Indigenous culture and history and land rights, and by advising and mentoring and assisting the Indigenous people ultimately receiving the Order of Australia and having one of her books entitled Sunrise Station Revisited, 
which she gifted to President Obama, now proudly displayed at the Smithsonian in the US. Living in a country town on a river provided a great environment for adventure. In those early days, I learned to love the forest, or the bush as we call it down under, or being out on the river with my canoe. My, canoe. Uh, my best friends since before kindergarten, daycare, uh, Tony and I were like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, adventuring around the local creek and the local bush, getting into all sorts of mischief. To this day, I still get a lot of my energy from being out in the wild, though I'm a lot less adventurous these days. I moved to Sydney at the age of 12 and did my best to adjust to life in the big smoke, although I have to admit my preference for less crowded environments has never changed. The move wasn't an easy one for our family as my alcoholic, overbearing, demeaning and, and sometimes violent father had gone his own way and left my mother and siblings to deal with an awful financial situation, the toll of years of emotional and physical trauma. My mother, as she always did in her life, was unwaveringly committed to her family and been working multiple jobs while doing her best to care for the kids and her ailing mother. The move to the Big Smoke was the final step in separating the four siblings, with just mum and I living together in an apartment in Western Sydney. To put the record straight on my father, he was a horrible person during our childhood and to the end he denied any recollection of his behaviour. He definitely had his demons and I've come to, the, to understand that the booze and the anger were his coping mechanisms. At the same time, he was a very highly regarded electrical construction foreman, and when the city of Darwin was flattened by Cyclone Tracy back in 1974, he headed up there to help rebuild it. While he was there, he found and married a wonderful and, and righteous lady. He found God, gave up the booze, and, and tried his best to reconcile with his family. Further, uh, in his retirement, he redeemed himself by leading the construction of the new Lutheran school there and became a beloved friend of the local indigenous community. He stayed in Darwin for the rest of his life, and I like to think that he left this world a better place in his own way. I, on the other hand, didn't adapt very well to the rough environment of the boys' school in Sydney either, and I did everything I could to avoid going to school, pretending to go but instead hiding out in the local neighbourhood, in the canal or up the, up the creek or wherever I could hide. In 1977, at the age of 14 years and nine months, I dropped out of school. I left school and started an apprenticeship as a clicker or a saddle maker. This was a huge turning point in my life as I found passion in the craft of hand cutting, shaping and stitching leather goods. The smell and the feel and the, a freshly tanned leather and the opportunity to, to really shape these articles from the beginning was, was quite rewarding. And the fact that I could now contribute financially gave me some of the self-respect that I really needed to restore. In late 1983, a hobby of developing databases, storage on a games console, a VIC-20, coincided with the need to escape once again, this time from a, a manager that I couldn't work with in the factory. A totally unexpected opportunity which allowed me to become a part of the rapidly emerging PC industry. In those days, the IBM PC AT and the Apple II were bringing affordable compute capabilities to small and medium businesses, schools and teachers and home hobbyists. Having the opportunity to be a part of this revolution was absolutely transformational for me. In reality, I'd resigned from the factory without a plan. And I'm reaching out to the, one of the computer stores that I've been working with, that I used to hang out at, in fact, for a reference, they instead offered me a job. 
I guess the fact that I'd been helping some of their customers as I was loitering around the store, playing with the, the computers there, they'd seen a spark, they'd seen some talent there in being able to support them. And so that allowed me to start to play with software and hardware uh, on a more daily basis. This is probably a good time to start talking about Peter. I met Peter through the era of Citizens Band Radio. Like, you know, today's social media, people of all ages were connecting with friends and strangers over their airwaves. And during a particularly challenging time in my life that I won't talk about in this particular episode, Peter and I met and immediately clicked. Although it was probably six months before we met in person, rarely did a day go by where we didn't talk to each other. Over the seven years that followed, Peter and I became like brothers. We shared a love of music, particularly Electric Light Orchestra and uh, Elton John. Um, we, uh, we loved, Peter, Peter loved to share his passion for technology and, and you know, everything in to do with tech, uh, CB radio, games, consoles, communications, computing. And what I learned from Peter in those years was the foundation for so much of what has enabled the career that I have all these years later. Then on a pretty normal Sunday afternoon in 1983, I received a phone call that would forever change my life. There'd been an accident. Peter's motorcycle collided with a car just a few blocks from his home and he died at the scene. This wasn't possible. It had to be a mistake. I told myself as I drove from the scene of the accident and then to Peter's father's house, trying to see the road through the tears that were streaming down my face. Looking back, I know I went through all the phases of grief, denial, anger, despair, and then into a very dark cave where I selfishly shut the world out and I moped around in isolation with complete disregard from my wife, my family, and my friends. This was the first experience of death of someone that I loved and I wasn't handling it well at all. How was it possible that after all the crazy high-speed riding that Peter and I had done and him on his Kawasaki Z1R and me on my 900 CBR, that his life could be taken as he made the very short trip to put fuel in his tank ready for the week ahead. It just didn't make sense. After a few months, another close friend, Alex, intervened and physically slapped me, hit me, told me to grow the hell up. The slap and the realisation of my selfish behaviour both really stung but it also shook the fog of Peter's death away and, and allowed me to regain my perspective. With that, I felt a burning compulsion that to honour his life, I needed to do something more with mine. And, and while it wasn't a consciousness at the time, I'm convinced that this was the catalyst for my leaving the factory the way that I did and seeking something else. Sadly, Alex, the friend who took the action to shake me out of my funk, succumbed to his own demons in the years that followed, and despite having a wonderful wife and two gorgeous twin daughters, he tragically took his own life. I'd spoken to Alex and his wife Linda just a few days before his suicide, and it, it, frankly, it's impossible to rationalise how effectively he was hiding the inner dialogue he must have been having that led to his decision to end his life. If only we'd known. But it's an all-too-common scenario, particularly for men who are conditioned that to show emotions is a sign of weakness. As a parent myself, I'm convinced that we owe our kids the comfort to be okay with their emotions, to be able to, to, to share how they're feeling and to never be ashamed to ask for support. All right, 
I don't want to bring you right down in my first episode. Let's bring this back to my career journey, which is a much happier topic. I mentioned to you that suddenly having quit my role at the factory, I joined the retail team at a company called Direct Computer Services in Hurstville. There I learned how to sell PC computer packages to students, teachers and small businesses. It's astonishing to recall that back in 83, a small business computing package was around $15,000, included a PC with an incredible 386K of memory, not megabytes, kilobytes, a 10 megabyte hard drive that we told the customers all the storage that they would ever need, a dot matrix printer and a monochrome monitor. Well, you could have color, green or amber. Beyond the selling part, which frankly I was not very good at, I learned how to configure PC-based accounting systems to write moderately complex computer scripts, and perhaps my favorite experience, to develop and deliver evening classes on PC computing to the local community. From the retail store, I transitioned to the headquarters in Ultimo in Sydney, where I continued to expand my technical skills to include repairing Apple PCs and IBM PC systems. I also began getting involved in the marketing and user group activities. I was a nervous wreck when it came to public speaking, and on a recommendation from one of my workmates, I took on an after-hours role as a mobile disc jockey. Talk about trial by fire. After shadowing just a couple of gigs, I was called in to cover for a DJ who failed to show for an event. Facing a crowd of a couple of hundred folk who already peeved about the DJ not showing, I stumbled my way through my first five-hour gig. It was actually a hoot. I continued to DJ for a few years, towing a big trailer behind me with turntables, lights and uh, speakers and uh, milk crates full of 12-inch albums. There was no CDs or streaming media back in those days. The additional cash was useful and my confidence with crowds was increasing with every gig. And I quickly learned to love wedding receptions, birthdays, school dances, fashion parades and all the things that I did. This was the disco era and my milk crates full of 12-inch vinyl albums and long play singles was packed with the music I love, along with the fun stuff like Dupor City Limits, Electric Slide, The Hokey Pokey, and of course, The Chicken Dance. As the PC craze started to slow down, many of the companies that had seized the opportunity to monetize this new industry struggled through the transition, and DCS, like so many, closed its doors, declaring bankruptcy. I continued independently to sell small business accounting systems for a while with my beautiful mum, uh, supporting me as my marketing manager, my coordinator. Again, mum to the rescue, she never had a fear of getting involved and helping us out. But as I mentioned, I was a pretty big failure when it came to closing deals and selling. I needed something more stable to support my growing family at that time. In 1987, I landed a role with the largest PC software distributor in Australia, a company called Imagineering. It's the same name as the innovation team at Disney, but that's pretty much where the similarities ended. Beyond the fact that CEO Jody Rich's aspiration was to make the impossible possible. The Imagineering role quickly turned into a supervisory role for a customer support organisation and uh, represented my first experience in coordinating and managing the performance of teams of people. The company was quite successful for a time and I really loved the experience in the call centre and the great people that I worked with there. Many of them are still very close friends today. I had developed a passion for PC database systems. I loved collecting data and analyzing data. And at that time, the industry standard was a product called DBase 3 from a Los Angeles-based company, Ashton Tate, who I'd formed a relationship with while I was working with Imagineering. 
When they decided to launch an Australian subsidiary in 1989, I was offered the role to lead the establishment of their local IT infrastructure and their customer services team. I'd never built anything like this before in my life, and the experience was both daunting, in fact, it scared the crap out of me, but also incredibly exciting. Being the MIS and customer services manager was my first formal management role and also my first introduction to working for a US-based company. These were still the days of dial-up internet connections, and I can still recall coming into the office very early in the morning, initiating the dial-up connection to the internet so that the email that had been sent by the US teams overnight could be downloaded to the Banyan Vine system while I had my first coffee of the day. Wind the clock forward to 1991, Ashton Tate was being acquired by another software company, Borland, and I was once again gifted with a life-changing opportunity to join Microsoft as they embarked on their mission to put a PC on every desktop. Initially, leading a team of technical support engineers supporting customers with Microsoft Office products, and then in 1993, leading the information technology team for Australia and New Zealand. I then had a five-year stint in Seattle, my first international assignment, in a variety of IT and technology roles. And finally, a wonderful three years in Dublin, Ireland, where I was so fortunate to lead the data center infrastructure operations teams across Europe and Asia. At that time, Microsoft was investing billions of dollars to establish the infrastructure they needed to support their Office 365 and Azure cloud platforms across the globe. But 18 years is a long time. And with the fear of being institutionalized, in 2010, I was presented with an opportunity to move to Nokia in Bristol in the UK, as they were trying to transform their company and their platform to be able to compete with the new killer iPhone. They'd been caught by surprise by the emergence of the smartphone and a rapid decline from being a market leader with 41% of the market. As Nokia later segregated into its different divisions, uh, I made the choice to join the geo-navigational organization called HERE, and with that, I relocated once again, this time to Berlin in Germany. Berlin was a risky move for us as it was the first non-English speaking country. And we'd been told that it wasn't a particularly friendly environment, that the food was terrible and there was no culture. How wrong that was. We absolutely loved our Berlin experience. We fell in love with the people, the culture, the music, the food, and of course, the beer and the pork knuckle. If it hadn't been for the arrival of our grandchildren back in Australia and feeling the need to be finally reunited with our, with our family back in Australia, we'd probably still be there. But yearning for home after 12 years abroad in 2014, I finally returned home to Australia and assumed that our international adventure had finally come to an end. Well, it had for a while. Now, I had an epiphany back in 2010. Although I'd been telling myself that technology was my motivation, I had a realisation that it was actually people who put the fire in my belly. You know, I'd had some successes in leading moderately large and culturally diverse technology teams for a couple of decades, and I was convinced that I needed to formalise my leadership tool belt. So beyond reading many books, I completed some correspondence-based diplomas in life coaching and neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, but these weren't satisfying my need for practical learning. So when I came back to Oz, I decided to take a year out to complete my Master Practitioner and Certified Trainer in NLP and Matrix Therapies, as well as a bunch of supporting frameworks such as eDisc, mBraining, a little bit of Cognitive Behavioural Therapy and Positive Psychology. To further support my development goals, I established a coaching practice and with a couple of colleagues, I developed and facilitated workshops for some very large Australian companies. 
Having achieved my goals of validating the merits of a future dedicated to coaching, training, and facilitation, I had a hunger to return to full-time employment, and the bank account needed it as well. I started with a few short-term assignments, working as an interim CIO for a financial services company, before I ended up back at Microsoft as a contractor, driving capacity planning and the transition of the Office 365 platform. And then in late 2016, I was tapped on the shoulder by a headhunter for Amazon Web Services. Now, I'd heard terrible things about the toxic culture at Amazon, and I'd never considered working there. But my initial conversations with the headhunter and the hiring manager were really positive. As it turned out, I was interviewing for a product management full-time role at Microsoft the same week that I interviewed for the role at Amazon. And after seven pretty intense but really interesting interviews at Amazon, I decided that they were the more attractive option, having a culture that felt like Microsoft had felt in the early 90s. Amazon had a set of leadership principles, and unlike most companies I'd dealt with, these really seemed to have been integrated into their DNA, and it came through very strongly in the interviews. My initial role was leading the infrastructure operations for Australia, and it was tremendously rewarding. And then in November of 2020, for reasons that I can't rationalise, but tempted by the prospect of leading a regional organisation, I took a great leap across to the physical security space and assumed the role of DC security manager for the Asia-Pacific, Japan and China regions. Another reason that I was completely unqualified for, by the way. To be closer to my teams in the region, my wife and I, emptying nesting by this stage, packed up our stuff yet again and moved to Singapore, our sixth country so far. The Singapore experience has been everything we'd hoped for. Despite the travel limitations, we arrived in March 2021. Joe and I have taken every opportunity to explore this wonderful country and culture. And over the past 18 months, I've been able to visit my teams across China, Hong Kong, India, Japan, Indonesia, South Korea, Malaysia, and of course, Australia and New Zealand. You know, it never fails to be incredulous to me that from that little factory in Western Sydney, with literally no formal qualifications, I've had this remarkable experience that's taken me around the world multiple times and granted me the opportunity to work and play with such a diverse group of the best humans that you could meet. It's fair to say that that voice of the imposter syndrome, that, that's been quite loud on my shoulder as a constant companion. But this late stage of my career, I guess I've largely been able to shut it down. We will definitely be talking about imposter syndrome in later episodes of the podcast. Now, if you've had the patience and tenacity to stay with me to this point, you might be thinking, so what? Well, maybe not a lot, to be honest, except I hope this provides some context behind the learning journey that I've been on so far and why this podcast is so important to me. There's really not a lot that I would change, to be honest. I've gained my experience through the School of Hard Knocks and being willing to be the dumbest guy in the room, which I've been many times, often stumbling through the learning process for each of the different roles that I've taken on. In reality, I attribute any success that I've had to the wisdom, the patience, the generosity of the various leaders that I've worked with, and of course, the amazing teams that I've had the privilege to lead. I can say with all humility that I've been blessed to lead and work with some of the most remarkable achievers who are also just good people. So many of them remain cherished friends and colleagues to this day. I've also had the joy of seeing them grow their careers and their families, and I've also been there for their setbacks and even their personal tragedies. I've learned that there are so many very real parallels between being a parent and a manager, the elation that comes when they have their achievements, the intense frustration when you can't protect them from stumbling, and the heartache when the bad stuff happens to them. Now, I'm probably biased given my lack of tertiary education, 
But it's my firm belief that the highest quality of learning comes from real-world experiences, not lectures, not textbooks, not paper qualifications. And so my sole motivation for this podcast is to attempt to share what I've learned with my listeners and also the lessons that have been learned by my guests. I've also made many, many mistakes along my path so far, and I'm convinced that the best life lessons come from not from our successes, but instead from our failures, provided we have the conviction and the vulnerability to accept the failure and the authentic curiosity to learn from them. So over the next couple of episodes, I'm going to share the vi- some of the vital lessons that I've learned through my journey, specifically dealing with imposter syndrome, establishing and maintaining a growth mindset, and my personal experiences of how sometimes the most positive co- outcomes are born from what appears to be a complete disaster. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for hanging in there. Please send me your feedback. I'm looking forward to hearing your, your thoughts and guidance on what you want to hear about in the future. And please join me for episode two coming soon.